Good evening. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on herbal medicine. And my guest is none other than the medicine hunter himself, Chris Kellum. Chris Kellum walks his talk as he gives us information on medicinal herbs, medicine hunting, traditional botanical medicines, nutraceuticals, environmental and cultural preservation, and other related topics. He walks his talk as he is an explorer in residence at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He has conducted medicinal research in over 20 countries. Some of these countries include India, China, Siberia, Brazil, Venezuela, Peru, Chile, the South Pacific, Lebanon, Syria, Ghana, Germany, Austria, Malaysia, Thailand, South Africa, Morocco, and the United States. He's appeared, of course, on Fox News Health, ABC, NBC, the BBC, Oprah, MSNBC, and is an expert on the Dr. Oz Show. Enjoy! Chris, how are you doing this evening? (laughs) Oh, pretty well. Thanks, Sabrina. It's nice to be with you. Wonderful. I wanted to get into the study of botanicals and, uh, you know, medicinal plants, etc. And I I hear you're the uh, medicine hunter. How did you get into this field? Tell the audience a little bit about you. Well, I I guess I could start out by saying I was a hippie in the 60s, which (laughs) meant meant that like so many people who went on to start, you know, whatever herbal tea companies or herbal companies of various types, uh, I became fascinated with plant medicines and was just sort of drawn in by the idea that, you know, you could use ginger root, for example, ginger root tea, you know, to treat a cold or mm-hmm. any number of other things. I mean, I was having great discoveries and that led me to study this whole field and get involved in the natural products industry. And, and I always loved to travel and I, and I fantasized that one day I could basically, you know, be, be, you know, make a good living traveling around the world to exotic places. And as it turns out, Plant medicines were really key to that. And about, oh, uh, 17 years ago now, I started to do this full-time as a career, uh, traveling the world, investigating medicinal plants, establishing trade between, you know, native communities and companies throughout the world, and um, doing environmental and cultural preservation work along the way. So it's, it's a very wonderful time to be involved in this. Awesome. Now, you said you got involved in it in the 60s. Uh, was it the, in something in college? What, what actually happened there? Well, I think what happened in the 60s was it was kind of like a, a wind that blew through a certain segment of the population, and we just became kind of suddenly convinced that things natural were better. And so that resulted in us, you know, like, looking for uh, natural foods and sort of spawning that whole, you know, like the early food co-op market scene. And, uh, I mean, people really just became convinced that there was something better than plastics and DuPont. And so this led to a whole, you know, different way of, of thinking and, you know, practicing yoga and and drinking pure water and, you know, not eating junk food. I mean, all that stuff, it kind of went along with the package. So uh, as it turns out, um, we just really were convinced that natural was better. And, and 
our intuition was exactly right on, even if we, you know, actually lacked the knowledge, say, that we possess today. Hmm. Now, you have to study for this. What is your background there? Well, I'm to a great extent self-taught. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's a kind of a squirrely term because I've learned from thousands of people. But, uh, you know, reading many hundreds of books and especially uh, works all about doing, you know, basically the lives and works of different people who've explored in the field one way or another, you know, whether they were geographers or hunters or, or you know, uh, people seeking medicinal plants. And um, I also had a, a, a course of studies at, at the University of Massachusetts when I was a student that I actually devised uh, called Mind-Body Disciplines, and it, it involved pretty heavy study of herbs and acupuncture and uh, yoga and um, Eastern and Western psychology. And it was, it was sort of, you know, your kind of holistic health type course. So that was sort of the, the academic springboard. But the, the rest of the decades have been, you know, self-teaching and learning from experts that I have encounters with all over the world. Awesome. Awesome. Now, the ethnobotany is the study uh, in the relationship between people and plants. And I know you travel extensively to learn about people and their native cultures and what they use these uh, herbal medicines for. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. You know, um, going going to different cultures, whether it's, you know, like far southwestern China or, for that matter, you know, uh, northwestern China or, you know, India or the South Pacific or, you know, different areas in the Amazon, there are cultures uh, that have a lot of... Uh, you know, compared to what they had hundreds of years ago, they've lost a lot of so-called tradition. But on the other hand, many of them are, are not so far away from what they used to be. It's just that they've got flip-flops and drawstring shorts now, you know. Wow. And so, and so which is cool, because not everybody wants to, like, you know, make a tree bark fiber skirt. I mean, so in, in any case... Um, you know, I, I wind up going into these different cultural scenes depending on what I'm investigating, you know, whether it's Morocco, for example, and the whole Berber culture out in the Atlas Mountains, or Siberia, you know, that the Altai people. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wind up becoming very involved with the people. And, and in fact, admittedly, the biggest payoff of all this work for me is the contact that I have with uh, people in different countries and cultures, and and what I learn from them, so because they're the real experts. If I'm, you know, if I'm in northwestern China to investigate rhodiola rosea, for example, which mm-hmm. is, among other things, the greatest antidepressant in the world. Period. Full stop. Um, you know, it meant being deeply involved with these Uyghur people who are like in. Chinese territory, but are, you know, Turkestani derived, and they have their whole custom and culture, and, you know, so it, so it winds up being just an enormous, enormous benefit of doing this work. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the uh, study of uh, people and plants, and how far back the science goes. Well, okay, the, the science, the study of medicinal plants, 
uh, mm -hmm. goes back a few thousand years that we know of. We see evidence of herbal knowledge in some of the ancient Chinese and Indian texts especially. But, uh, you know, maybe even uh, going back 3,000 years in some cases. But mm -hmm. the use of medicinal plants that we know of goes back about 65,000 years. The, the earliest evidence uh, was a, a Neanderthal, uh, basically a mummified Neanderthal found in a place called Shanidar Cave in Iraq. This was back in about 1960-61, and he carbon dated to be about 65,000 years old. And on his person was a, a satchel that contained the remnants of uh, eight different medicinal plants, uh, I, I think seven of which are still in use in that region today. So clearly people, you know, humans, proto-humans, knew about the medicinal uses of plants. And, and um, this, is, this should not be a surprise, you know. Mm -hmm. they, were much, they were living in a more natural environment, and they had every reason to be very aware of what the different, you know, vegetation around them was and what it could do. Wow. Now, of course, we talked about this on your, if you go to your Wikipedia, they only go back as far as 77 AD with Greek uh, surgeon. I want to try to pronounce this. Diosaurides? Diosaurides. Yeah, Diosaurides. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. But okay. there are, but there are uh, ancient texts that predate Diosaurides. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we must not live and die by Wikipedia. I oh, for sure. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, I mean, you know, we've been around for, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years, probably longer than we even realize. Right, and, right, of course, they right. had their own remedies and knew what worked. And, of course, we're not there to even know because the records and whatnot. I wanted you to talk about some of the uh, more than 20 places you've been and what you've seen in this area of medicine you know, medicinal uh, herbs and whatnot and plants that uh, we might be uh, interested in. I know you've been to uh, Lebanon, the South Pacific, and Venezuela, and Peru, and many other places, and we don't get to hear a lot about this, so you can tell us what are some of the things that are coming around the corner, and what are some of these, uh, you know, uh, ways of being in these countries? What do we need to know? Well, okay, that's that's a great question, actually. Um, I had just a moment ago mentioned in passing rhodiola rosea mm -hmm. and uh, it's sort of as good a, an entree as, as any in a way because these the if I'm pursuing a particular plant that by you know virtue of where it originates puts me in a certain geography and in the case of rhodiola rosea a very highly prized root from northern Asia that's put me both in the Altai region of Siberia, which as it turns out is just this spectacular, beautiful, clean, largely unpolluted, very friendly, somewhat wild region um, in southern Siberia where this particular route, this uh, route that's highly prized for its energizing and stress relieving and mind enhancing properties, um, is abundant in the wild and where people harvest this in the wild. And uh, I've also been just south of there in a mountain range that really, I mean, by all rights, I just have to say, should be as well known as like 
the Himalayas or the Andes, the Tian Shan Range, one of the one of the great mountain ranges of the world, massive, just massive. And I was there, on, on, so in China, just south of the Siberian Altai region, um, investigating the same plant years later. And what happens in these regions, like in the Altai, um, they, you know, they're living in these vast pine and birch forests or among these forests, and... Um, you know, part of how a person makes a living through, you know, to sustain them through the very harsh and cold winters, you know, they grow some things, they go out and they look for different medicinal plants that they can sell and trade. And so I wound up with scientists and people who go out in the mountains and, and you know, actually hunt these plants down uh, to harvest them and then eventually sell them to traders. And I also did that on the Chinese side. And and it, it's it's just you're really in a completely other world from what we have here, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. In both cases, spectacular mountain scenery and really simple but amazing foods, you know. Like in, in China, um, in this particular region, the people made these huge round breads that were maybe, I don't know, like three inches high or so. Mm-hmm. but big in these special skillets. And they were, we were forever being served these breads with uh, pretty tangy, unrefrigerated, you know, local uh, butter. Mm-hmm. And um, just great stuff. I mean, stuff you're not going to encounter in another place. And um, I, so, what? but in the course of, of the work of investigating Rhodiola rosea and how it's, potentially of benefit, say, to people listening to your show, mm-hmm. um, is that it, it's, it's called an adaptogen. It helps you to adapt to all forms of stress, mental and physical, uh, whether you're talking about altitude or a rough schedule or environmental sound or oxygen deprivation, any number of things. It's really quite powerful, and it does reduce stress hormones in the blood. Uh, it's profoundly antidepressant. So there are many psychiatrists around the world who use rhodiola and don't use, you know, the pharmaceuticals for depression. Uh, and that that list is growing as they're finding out about this. It also imparts energy, endurance, stamina. It boosts sexual and reproductive function. It's quite remarkable. It's very broad in its activity and extensively well studied. So. You know, in the course of having experiences with these different people, I always also wind up accomplishing, you know, the business of uh, finding out where a certain plant originates it, who harvests it, who trades in it, you know, what the market price is, what are the circumstances around this. And that inevitably puts me in the company of one group of people after another, and that's just a blast for me. Awesome. What is the oldest medicinal plant that you have come across in the various areas that maybe is across the board? What do you mean across the board? Meaning it could be in China, it could be in uh, Ah. or Syria or... Well, I I think in terms of, you know, we don't know uh, what was used first. I mean, I, I tend to think that the northern Asian plants, Mm -hmm. uh, ginseng, Mm-hmm. Um, 
noto ginseng, which is a whole other plant, uh, rhodiola, what I just described, and eleuthero, uh, which is like those. Uh, they all um, they all have a, at least a couple thousand years of use. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it may be that something like cocoa, and I don't mean coca, but cocoa, uh, its use may go back uh, a few thousand years. Is there a difference uh, between cocoa and cacao? Well, okay, cacao, it, it, the nomenclature sometimes gets a little icky. Uh, mm-hmm. Cacao is the tree, and it's also the pod. Okay. Cocoa is the bean that's inside the cacao pod. So, you know, you can either just kind of like describe it all as cocoa or you can break it out. You know, the cacao is the botanical name for sure, and cocoa is what we get from it. And, um, you know, that that use goes back yeah, at least a couple thousand years. And for sure, people at that time were turned on to the at least some of the medicinal and mood-enhancing properties of cocoa. We know that. So... Um, I think a lot of things go back a few thousand years. I don't know that I can pinpoint what's the oldest plant mm-hmm. I've, you know, worked with. One of the most interesting for about 10 years I worked with kava from the South Pacific, deep deep in the South Pacific in a in a very native tribal country, you know, called Vanuatu and um I uh through the course of of studying kava, which is a profound relaxant and anti-anxiety aid. It's made from the root of a bush. Um, they drink kava there every evening. Um, it's non-alcoholic, but it produces this immediate feeling of tranquility, it's, and it's a muscle relaxant. So, you know, you'll sit around in a, in a native hut in really low light, you know, as darkness is falling across the bay from a live volcano and you know talk about your day and drink coconut shells of kava and it gets pretty far out there and um you know in the course of of becoming good friends with and doing business with innumerable people down there i became their diplomatic representative to the u.s for a few years and you know, I'm a chief down there, and I'm one of the people that has been, you know, one of the leaders of traditional firewalks that happened down there for a bunch of years. And so, you know, I got I got deeply involved with that culture and group, and I've been doing that more recently in the Amazon. Uh, recently, I mean, whatever, 14 years, but uh, so. I'm always going further in, always always finding out more about the people and the plants. I wanted to get into some of the plants that uh, you have uh, been able to study and, uh, you know, help the audience to know what, because uh, you've mentioned kava, what about maca? Well, maca and, and rhodiola and kava and cocoa, these are among my most favorites. Maca is this marvelous root uh, from the mustard family that grows only at very high altitude. When I say high altitude, we're, we work at 15,000 feet above sea level up in the Andes with this stuff. And uh, when I say we, you know, I'm connected in trade with a, uh, a company 
that that operates a whole maca, you know, harvesting and processing scene way up in the Peruvian Andes. Uh, maca, as it turns out, has been cultivated by the people in the Andes for over 2,000 years. It was actually used as currency for a long time, and it imparts tremendous energy and stamina. It's highly nutritious. It's got about 12% protein, and it's got good, easy-to-digest natural carbohydrates, and it's loaded with plant sterols, and that's very good for all of your glandular function, and uh, it contains compounds not seen in any other plants that greatly boost, you know, uh, energy and uh, sexual and reproductive health and function and uh, enhance mood. It, it, it's a it's a really remarkable plant, and it, and it's used as a staple food up there. But in other parts of the word world, it's a supplement. So. Um, you know, I've been involved with maca, uh, gosh, for 14, 13, 14 years now, and uh, work with a, a group up up in the Andes called Chacarunas, and they have, you know, completely certified organic, um, ethically traded, meaning paying significantly higher than the market rate for the maca. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work with the community. One of the themes that runs through my career and, and in the careers of a lot of the people I work with is making sure that communities benefit. So, you know, like I was talking about Kava in Vanuatu, we, we rebuilt about a dozen schools down there and we rebuilt a maternity clinic and, and provided a lot of supplies and got all the kids in the nation vaccinated and did a whole bunch of stuff over time. Uh, with revenues that accrued from the trade. And, and in the case of Maca, we do that as well. We operate a free dental clinic and um, a free Internet cafe. And, uh, you know, money from the Maca trade helped to put electricity in this remote town wow. out in the Andes. And so, so they're all, you know, you, you, get, you want benefits to flow in both directions. We get the benefits of taking Maca. You can get powdered Maca throw a tablespoon into a blender drink in the morning, you'll notice the difference in energy, but it's not a caffeine buzz at all. It's, a, it's you know, maca really working deep in you. And um, on the other hand, you can also get, like, concentrated extracts in capsules and stuff. So, you know, it's making its way into the supplement scene. And I've been very, very responsible for its popularization both here in the U.S., and also throughout um, Europe, I, I've been a, uh, a big crusader for maca and have helped to get it into a lot of large companies over there. And that has a great effect for the growers up in the Andes. They get more business. And, um, you know, it makes a difference in terms of uh, their quality of life. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. I want to mention a few of these others here. Cat's Claw. Where does that come from, and what does it do? Well, cat's claw is um, probably the single most popular remedy in the Amazon rainforest, or at least in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, more people use cat's claw than use anything. It's the interior bark of a woody vine 
that grows all over the rainforest there. Mm -hmm. And what the people do is they cut this vine and they strip the bark and they take out the inside bark and then that gets used to make preparations of different kinds. And I, I'm very involved with cat's claw and the cat's claw trade because it is certainly one of the greatest anti-inflammatory uh, agents of all time. And so many chronic degenerative diseases, or all chronic degenerative diseases include inflammation, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, arthritis, anything that ends in itis. And, and also, you know, inflammation often equals pain. And, and cat's claw is a tremendous anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. Also, it is one of the very best things on earth for enhancing immune function. Uh, if a person's immune system is functioning too low, cat's claw will bring that function up to a normal, healthy level. But what's even more remarkable is that in the case of some people's immune functions, actually, immune systems actually attack their bodies, and that's when you get autoimmune disorders like lupus and um, rheumatoid arthritis. Cat's claw will actually bring that high immune function down. So it's a modulator. It's quite remarkable, and it, it is a registered drug in Austria for the treatment of uh, both rheumatoid arthritis and also reproductive cancers. So, so cat's claw is a very serious plant, and um, it's something that a lot of people could benefit from instead of using you know, acetaminophen or ibuprofen. They could take something that doesn't have the same liver or kidney toxicity and still get pain relief. Um, but also boost the immune system instead of potentially compromising it. So this is a, a big thing, and, and, and I, I also am trying to move it into the cosmetic market because it has remarkable skin healing and uh, sort of youth-enhancing properties. So that's kind of what I'm up to with Cat's Claw. Mm -hmm. 